BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Frank Bruni. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. We'd like to start today's show with an apology to all of you who wrote or called in to ask what happened to last week's episode. The answer is that we took an unexpected week off, and we apologize for not giving our listeners a heads up. Here's what happened. Our department, the opinion section at the New York Times, was in turmoil. The cause was an op-ed that we published by Tom Cotton, a Republican senator from Arkansas. It called for deploying the U.S. military to end the riots and looting taking place in American cities around some of the Black Lives Matter protests. Some Times readers and some Times reporters swiftly denounced the piece, arguing that it represented a tacit call for violence against protesters and that it endangered the lives of Times reporters of color who were already at risk while covering the unrest. In the wake of this controversy, the Times' editorial page editor, James Bennett, our boss, resigned. The paper published an editor's note on top of the original op-ed, explaining that the essay fell short of our op-ed standards and shouldn't have gone out. Because arguing is what we do, a number of op-ed writers have since weighed in, myself included. I wrote a defense of publishing the piece, mistaken though I thought Cotton's argument was, and a critique of what I see as the more activist direction that journalism and our paper seems to be taking in its coverage of American debates. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the op-ed controversy, hopefully without too much New York Times navel-gazing. And then we'll talk about the debates roiling our industry more generally, about objectivity versus truth, about the press's duty to report multiple sides of a debate versus its duty to stand up for democratic values. And then we'll also talk about the way the Black Lives Matter movement has inspired a reckoning with some of these questions and, maybe, hastened a generational turnover in elite institutions. Some of these questions are obviously a little personal for me, since I exist in the Times opinion pages as a representative of commitments that many of our readers don't share— social conservatism, Roman Catholicism, some kind of connection, however reluctant, to the Republican Party. And I'm well aware that there are some readers who think that some of my ideas don't actually have a place in liberal institutions and discourse anymore. Before we get into my issues, I'm going to ask my colleagues to air theirs, starting with Michelle, who wrote a column herself on the Cotton op-ed that called it fascist, but also seemed conflicted about whether we were right to publish it. So, Michelle, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about your thinking? Sure. Well, I first became aware of the op-ed when someone sent me this horrified message, like, can you believe this? And I was sort of like, yeah, of course I can believe it. Um, You know, I I understand the ethos of what the op-ed page has been, you know, historically and in recent years. We publish a lot of terrible people with terrible views and has have historically seen that as part of the mission, right? We've published an op-ed by Vladimir Putin 
in February, we published an op-ed by the deputy leader of the Taliban. And so I just, you know, know how our then bosses kind of think about the spirit of the enterprise. And so it didn't seem that out of keeping with with um, with what we've done historically. And, you know, which I think doesn't suggest that any of them agree with that point of view or even think it's really worth considering as much as just this is clearly an operative opinion at the highest levels of government. And, you know, you sort of need to consider it and be aware of it. But then as I started to see this really anguished reaction from our colleagues, I started to reconsider because, you know, look, a lot of them are, you know, out in the streets covering this story, being brutalized by the police. When they talk about an op-ed like this putting our colleagues in danger, I don't think it's theoretical. I don't think it's like that they feel like emotionally unsafe. I think that legitimizing a military occupation of American cities against the will of their leadership is putting people actually in danger, particularly when we're at this sort of tipping point about whether or not the military and various people at high levels of government are going to tolerate the president sort of acting like a dictator. You know, in as much as the Times was suggesting that, no, this actually is a kind of valid conversation in the same way that we would not have run an op-ed by Kirsten Nielsen at the height of the family separation crisis about, you know, why taking children from their parents is a good idea. Um, We wouldn't run an op-ed by Stephen Miller about why the U.S. should curb non-white immigration. You know, it this the more I thought about it, the more I sort of saw this as being in that category. Frank, you very wisely um, were away on vacation when we decided to have a department-wide <laughs> meltdown. Um, so I'm sure you were you were pretty excited to come back. But you've, your your escape is over, and now you have to tell us what you think. Well, for starters, Ross, there is no vacation when the department is melting down. Um, but listen, that is the that is the least of the important things here. Um, I, you know. I feel like it's a trick question, you know, whether we should have published the top Tom Cotton op-ed because there's, should we have published it exactly as it was? That's one question. And then another question is, should we have published it in theory and in general, you know, and as a matter of course, in terms of diverse opinions? I mean, there are things about that op-ed uh, in the form in which it was published that, that trouble me greatly. Uh, there was the assertion that police are bearing the brunt of the violence in America's streets, and I, I don't think that's at all established. In fact, that's probably not the case. There were extreme assertions in there that, if not factually inaccurate, were close enough that I think they could have been changed, and my guess is it would have been okay with Tom Cotton and his people if they were changed, as long as he was still getting his piece out there. So there's that question, but with those changes, um, was it worth publishing? You know, it's important to remember that this is not this is not some guy in a tinfoil hat on the corner who has a crazy notion that offends a lot of people. This is uh, one of the Republican Party's leaders. He was articulating an argument that was already out there. And I think, Michelle, you just talked about uh, the legitimate concern we should have about legitimizing certain positions. I think we flatter and inflate ourselves, we, the New York Times, 
if we think we were key in legitimizing what he was saying. Um, I think it was, in a sense, legitimate already in the sense that the president was talking about it. Many people in the Republican Party were talking about it. And it's arguable, I think, by letting people hear his voice as his voice is, and it's a scary and even creepy voice, we may have actually (laughs) helped move the country farther away from this ever happening than closer to it happening. Michelle, in your column, you had two phrases that really struck with me that I thought were great, describing what Tom Cotton wrote. And you talked about his strongman pretensions, and you talked about, I love this even more, his sneering apocalyptism. Here's the thing. I think it's good for readers and Americans to to hear those strongman pretensions and to feel that sneering apocalyptism, because I think it's more likely than not, if they haven't digested this issue and thought about it, to bring them around to what I think is the correct point of view, which is, no, we don't want to use the military to occupy our cities with all the dangerous consequences in this current context that that could bring. I, I, I always tilt toward wanting to hear what people who disagree with me have to say, if only so I know how to argue with them and I know how to engage it. And I also don't think we as an institution, the New York Times, or we as a democracy, um, do ourselves a service to pretend certain feelings aren't there. Ross, in your very moving opening to this podcast, you talked about um, how odd or uncomfortable it can be uh, to be a social conservative Roman Catholic um, at a paper where that's the exception, um, and at a, at a paper whose audience probably more, more, more people don't agree with you than do. So you have written, for example, um, against the legalization of same-sex marriage. Um, I'm openly gay. I'm not married, but I sure as hell think I have the right to be. And when I read a column like that of yours, there is a a way in which, at least for a moment, it feels hurtful. Um, It makes my pulse race. But here's the thing. I want to read it because you are not articulating a fringe opinion. Um, You are not articulating it for hateful reasons. You are sharing with me the way you and a great many Americans think. And while I may wish you think differently, I want to know, what's the foundation of that thinking? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? Again, if only so I can engage with you uh, and hopefully get some movement toward what I think is a fairer and more just place. So to go back to the top cotton op-ed with certain changes, um, slight alterations, I'm for hearing this stuff um, because I think we don't make ideas go away by ignoring them. But I think that all three of us agree that there are certain ideas that don't belong on the op-ed page, right? That are so disgusting, so beyond the pale that they shouldn't be sort of taken seriously and considered. And what I tried to write about is that what's changed is that you used to be able to sort of marginalize those ideas and still cover the full spectrum of kind of relevant public opinion. And you no longer can because you have an administration that is so rife with um, bigotry and demagoguery and and conspiracy theories, right? I'm not sure if we would run an op-ed arguing that, say, Muslims should be banned from the United States, even though that's, you know, the policy of the president of the United States. And so, again, I just I think that there are clearly lines being drawn. The debate that we're having is about where those lines should be drawn. We wouldn't publish an op-ed, I don't think. Um, We certainly wouldn't now. I don't think we would have before by the white nationalist 
Richard Spencer, right? We would have said that is beyond the pale. And so again, I think the question becomes, is calling for a military occupation of American cities in response to mass protests against systemic racism, is that beyond the pale, right? Would we have published Bull Connor maligning Martin Luther King? I'm not sure. I mean, maybe we would have then, but would that have been the right thing to do? Ross, we got to hear you. Two things going on here simultaneously, and I'm curious what you guys think of this framework. So on the one hand, I think that Michelle is right that there are certain pieces that we would never publish, certain arguments that we wouldn't let somebody make. But, you know, 15, 15 or 20 years ago, when I was starting out in my career, the range of issues that were sort of seen as closed for debate was relatively narrow. You wouldn't publish pieces attacking the civil rights movement for the most part. And indeed, even when um, a, you know, then respectable conservative figure like Dinesh D'Souza attacked the Civil Rights Act in the mid-1990s, it was at that time really bad for his career. So you wouldn't publish Bull Connor. There was sort of a bright line against racism. And then, you know, there was also sort of the anachronism thing. You wouldn't publish a piece about an issue that was no longer a live debate. But there was a pretty wide range of what we think of as, you know, culture war issues where um, the the sort of normal lines of debate were to the right of where they are now, right? And I mean, obviously, you know, same-sex marriage, which Frank mentioned, and, you know, Frank, I, I appreciate your willingness to read those columns that I wrote, I guess, now seven years ago, five, I'm not sure how long ago. Um, but same-sex marriage was a live debate in 2000 and sort of, and people were would pen arguments on both sides. And at a certain point, it was seen as settled. And then it became seen that, you know, that this was sort of the the anti same sex marriage position was tantamount to bigotry. And so there was a view, not your view, Frank, but a pretty widely shared view, I think that those arguments don't need to be aired anymore. And then that I think that tendency expanded. And there's a, you know, a potent and significant view mostly on the American left, to the effect that a lot of issues around sex and race and immigration are issues where the sort of rightward position is just illegitimate, and that's pretty new. So while that change has been happening, then you have the Donald Trump phenomenon, where you have a president who clearly has an authoritarian temperament, who doesn't respect sort of norms and guardrails, and is saying things publicly that no U.S. president has said in my lifetime. And that in turn makes people on the left and center left and some people on the right feel like the public conversation is getting pulled way to the right. Do you guys think that's right? There's obviously things about this kind of climate that we're in, you know, as somebody who had a free speech orientation, as somebody who came of age in the golden age of the slate pitch and reflexive contrarianism, that feels really inhibiting and makes me really uncomfortable, as I think is true of a lot of people my age. When I really think about it, I I think it is far from clear that we are in a more censorious time than, say, 15 years ago. I think that in the past, you know, publishing op-eds about prison abolition would have been considered, you know, kind of ridiculous and beyond the pale. But more than that, I think we're ignoring the incredibly repressive atmosphere around the war on terror. Um, you know, Paul Krugman has told me the story that I have his permission to share about 
coming under a lot of internal pressure to not go so hard on George W. Bush, right? At a time when Paul Krugman was the leftmost voice on, by far, on the New York Times um, op-ed page. You know, there was people who lost their jobs. Bill Maher was literally canceled. Well, and this is something that I think is really funny about Bill Maher, right? Because Bill Maher is always complaining about the new speech police and about all this new censorship. But the one time that Bill Maher was actually canceled was when he said something that offended partisans of the war on terror, right? When he said, one thing you can't say about the 9-11 hijackers is that they were cowards, Um, something to that effect, right? There was like burning of Dixie Chicks CDs and... So again, there were clearly lines back then. I think looking back, it's just wrong to think of that as a golden age of free speech. And looking back, I'm not sure that we ever had a golden age of of free speech. What's changing now is kind of where those lines are. And I think you're right when you point to the meltdown of a center that sort of everybody can agree is legitimate, Right. So you basically have the far right, you have a newly assertive left, and you have much less space where there's at least enough common, um, enough of a common worldview to have a kind of productive argument. I I totally agree, Michelle. There was a a brief and strange period right after 9 11 when George W. Bush was extraordinarily popular and America was in a kind of, you know, Toby Keith listening, let's kick some ass kind of mood when you had right wing cancel culture as a pretty powerful force in American pop culture with Marr and the Dixie Chicks as just sort of the most prominent examples. I think what Marr would say um, is that he's actually being consistent, that he hated cancel culture when it was right wing and now he hates it when it's left wing and now he's on HBO so he's a little safer, but you know, he still he still hates it. But the difference is is that this time he's not actually being canceled. Right. He's not being canceled. People do get canceled. But I think one of the things I was hearing and what you were saying, Michelle, which I thought was really true, is we seem to constantly be conflating people getting savaged on Twitter with people being silenced. Right. And so so we read all of these stories about how, oh, my, so and so tries to say this um, and the Twitter mob comes after him or her. But he or she did say it is continuing to say it. And while I'm the last person to endorse a Twitter mob about anything, the notion that the person has been shut up is not exactly correct, right? I mean, so Twitter is going after Joe Rogan all the time, and Joe Rogan has, like, the biggest audience in the world. So he hasn't... So he's not an example of free speech being squelched. I mean, to the contrary, he's an example of free speech happening. Although the one thing that I think has changed... You know, in the past, I think you could draw kind of a bright line. And I have drawn a bright line that says, you know, if if you've been silenced, how come I can still hear you? <laughs> but the fact that the institution protects people who are um, or has protected, you know, people who are kind of on the wrong side of a lot of this outrage has always made me feel protected, too, that I would be okay if for some reason I ever crossed a line. If I, if I were to whip up a Twitter mob against you. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, do, do your worst. Well, Ross, can I say something about, can I make a journalism point here that I don't think is too navel-gazy? I feel like in, in all of this discussion about the Tom Cotton op-ed, one of the things that got sort of confused or lost, and, and I, I think we should kind of pivot back to it because it's an important opportunity to kind of educate the public in case some people don't understand it. When we run something, 
we are not putting our imprimatur on it. We are not saying this is something you absolutely should give serious constructive thought to, like with the Tom Cotton op-ed. And I, I feel like we need to we need to say to readers, most stuff is put in the paper without an agenda, like we're trying to move you in this direction or that direction, but a lot of stuff is put in the paper so that you can make of it what you will. We put stuff in the paper all the time, opinion as well as news, where we may share some of your reservations or we may even be anticipating some of your reactions to it, but we're not, we're not saying that that's what it must be. We're putting it out there for that reason, and to assume we're putting it out there because we're validating it um, is a huge misassumption that people should be aware of. But I think this, this lets me pull this back to my feeling about what's distinctive about the Trump era, right, which is that I think people have always had that kind of confusion um, as readers, and you know, only only the deep dyed journalist, and not even us, fully understands the distinction between the op-ed page and the editorial page <laughs> and the news page. You know, things that are so important to journalism self conception, but are less important to readers. Um, and obviously, the internet has sort of unbundled people's reading experience in a way that makes it even harder for them to see the difference between one kind of story and another. But the Trump era has taken that further, right? There's a big swath of the New York Times readers that feels like this is a moment of existential threat to American democracy. And therefore, the Times has a duty to, on the one hand, be sort of four square against Trump, and two, not to you know, not to sort of normalize any arguments associated with the Trump administration. And I guess all I'm saying is that if that argument were made in the context of riots in an American city under a different Republican president, I think the overall, you know, the overall temperature and reaction would have been different. And there would have been less talk about how this was fascism and more how it was, you know, people would say it's a danger, you know, this would set a dangerous precedent, you shouldn't do it you wouldn't go all the way to the sort of well, authoritarian the, the, the menace. the danger of fascism would feel less imminent. I'm just trying to make a, a broader point, which is that, like you mentioned earlier, we wouldn't publish, you know, you think a piece by Stephen Miller saying the U.S. should have less non-white immigration, right? But, you know, that isn't the piece that Stephen Miller would pitch to us if he did. He would pitch a piece saying the position of the Trump administration is that the United States should have less low-skilled immigration and a lower immigration rate overall. I guess I'm just suggesting that there's been this this simultaneous shift leftward in elite discourse and this sense that, you know, that the Trump administration is racist. And therefore, even when they say things that would be normally within the mainstream of debate, we shouldn't give them a platform. But like you can come up with other examples that aren't Trump related, like, you know, J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, just wrote a very long public essay defending her critiques of the official activist consensus on transgender rights has ended up. I think five years ago, that's a piece that we would have wanted to publish on the New York Times op-ed page. And today, it's a piece that I suspect we wouldn't publish. And, and that's, you know, that's just another case study in where the lines, I think, have shifted in ways that aren't the end of free speech, but they are a change. Well, it's, it's complicated, Russ. It's, here's the thing. We, 
It is, it is, it is, some of these calls are easy. It is easy to say we're never publishing a piece uh, by Alex Jones. And I suspect if we did, <laughs> many, I, I suspect if we woke up one morning and there was a piece by Alex Jones in the opinion page, many of us would walk out the door. But the reason the Tom, Tom Cotton up that is absorbing our attention right now and has generated so much discussion is because sometimes these calls are much, much more difficult. We've talked about where you draw the line, and sometimes the line is super easy to draw, and sometimes the line is a really, really tricky thing. And we're going to make some unpopular calls, and we're going to make some calls that maybe a few months or a few years later are going to be deemed wrong calls, but that's because these are not usually totally simple decisions. They're just not, and I, and I hope that doesn't get lost in our passion. Yeah, so one, one last question for you guys, and then, and then we'll take a break. It, it also seems to me that like the defense of publishing, the, the argument that you've just articulated, Frank, um, that the cotton op-ed fell short sort of in some of its claims and some of its rhetoric didn't meet our standards in that sense, but a more perfected version we should have run. That is the official position of the New York Times right now. That's the position of the editor's note um, that we that we appended. It's the position of our boss of bosses, A.G. Salzberger. But at the same time, I think in practical terms, the point that Michelle was articulating that you know, the the backlash within the paper reflected a newsroom backlash in a sense that this op-ed was dangerous to people reporting on the protests. That that seems like the real reason that our boss, James Bennett, is no longer our boss. Yeah, I agree. So it seems like there's sort of a tension between the the practical realities of sort of newsroom op-ed conflict and the official stance that we're trying to take. Do you think that's right? So I think that's that's mostly right. I mean, I think that, look, there was clearly some sort of breakdown in internal processes that is probably at least in part um, a function of the fact that the office has been, you know, scattered to the four corners of the world, right? I do think there was a sense that this was a mistake to publish because the position itself is so antithetical to the values of, you know, where most people at the times are. And that a lot of the critiques of the piece itself, while I, even though I think they're true, were sort of rationalizations for walking back um, our publication of it. Yeah, I think that's totally plausible. If the lesson of this piece is that when you are making a right of center argument um, in the pages of a newspaper with a primarily liberal audience, you're going to be held to a higher standard. That's fine with me in the sense that I, <laughs> I've worked here for 10 years and um, what I worry more about is a standard where some combination of the newsroom finds this piece odious means that op-eds won't be defended, because I can very easily imagine op-eds that I might write in some future Republican administration or, or not, where arguments along those lines could be constructed and used to, I guess you could say, cancel me. And since obviously I prefer not to be canceled on this show and in the pages of the New York Times, I think that's a concern that this incident has left me with. So on that personal note, we'll take a break and be right back. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Opinion. 
Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. So we at the Times aren't the only ones in turmoil. Other media companies are also seeing executive-level ousters and resignations in the last week. As companies show public solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, many employees are saying, not so fast. They're calling out what they see as corporate hypocrisy, mistreatment, racism in high places, and top editors and CEOs have resigned in a previously unthinkable flurry. The editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, a top editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, officials at the Poetry Foundation, all resigned to make way for a theoretically more equitable workspace. So Frank, what do you make of these resignations? Are you surprised? Um, I I can't say I'm exactly uh, surprised, um, because as soon as they started happening, you realize something that you kind of saw if you weren't look, even if you weren't looking at it as directly as you were, which is just how much frustration there was out there, just how many people felt, you know, excluded from the conversation and felt that their contributions weren't being noted. I mean, it's fascinating. And we start to talk about something having happened overnight. I'm sure I've read that phrase in the last week or a couple of days, you know, seemingly overnight, blah, blah, blah. But this, this isn't overnight. This is over decades. And what happens is that, kind, is that frustrations um, and resentments and thwarted ambitions that have been building over decades find expression overnight or almost overnight. They've been building. People have been getting more and, and more impatient for something to happen. I think that you cannot have a successful, healthy institution or corporation, or for that matter, democracy, um, if a critical mass of people feel like they're not being heard and they're not getting their shot. And I think that's the story here. Um, we, are, we are learning or relearning or being forced to confront that far too many Americans in the workplace, as well as in the political sphere, um, have felt that they were invisible, ignored, or disregarded. They're trying to have that change. That's the conversation we're having. And now that we're having it, no, it doesn't seem surprising to me at all. It feels, if anything, surprising that it didn't happen a little bit sooner. But Michelle, you may have different thoughts. You tell us. Well, so first of all, I just want to acknowledge the sort of weird irony of three white people having this conversation, right? And in some ways, the fact that it is three white people is a sign of the underlying problem at a lot of these institutions. Um, The way to rectify that is to make the institutions a lot more diverse as opposed to asking our black colleagues to do more work when the subject turns to diversity. So it seems to me that what's happening feels a lot like the early days of the Me Too movement, but it feels very condensed And it also feels like the Me Too movement in that you have some really egregiously bad actors being revealed and defenestrated, and then some kind of much more ambiguous situations that seem more, like you said, this sense of of really overdue justice at a lot of these organizations. And also people who haven't lost their position, but whose position suddenly seems um, 
tenuous in a way that would have been inconceivable 10 years ago. I'm thinking particularly of a lot of the anger and calls for resignation of Anna Wintour at Condé Nast, right? I mean, you just could not have imagined her being dethroned. There's two things going on, right? There's there's kind of pent up um, anger and resentment over a long history of, of racism and slights and missed opportunities, like you said, thwarted ambition. There's another piece of this that's like the Me Too movement in that what started out as a reckoning over police violence has now turned into, or at least adjacent to that, there's this media reckoning. Um, even though, you know, as bad as the media is, there's no reason to think that this problem is, you know, kind of concentrated in the media more than in any other industry. But the power of social media and the overrepresentation of journalists on Twitter means that kind of these dynamics play out much more quickly and much more visibly in the culture in, in the culture industry than in, say, you know, finance or real estate or a billion other sectors that I'm sure have also really poisonous racial dynamics. Right. But I think you got at something that is distinct about the media, right, which is that it's like lots of industries have racism and lots of industries have bad bosses, but only the media has contracted in this really dramatic way over the last 10 or 20 years. Um, and I've been fascinated. Um, there's this guy named Peter Turchin, uh, who has written a couple of books about sort of the cycles of history, these sort of, you know, vast sweeping theories of how societies enter into periods of chaos and then periods of order and so on. And it's the kind of thing I didn't find totally persuasive in the past, but Turchin did write a piece about 10 years ago arguing that according to these cycles, 2020 was going to be this peak year for chaos. So at this point, I, I feel like you have to pay a little more attention attention to him. And one of the arguments he makes is that is that wealthy societies, successful societies generate what he calls overproduction of elites. Basically, you end up with too many successful or people who want to be successful, who are well-educated, who, you know, come from some kind of mass upper class, pursuing too small a group of offices. And, you know, in the most extreme form, it's the offices of the Roman Republic, and you end up with, you know, endless civil wars. But in a less extreme form, I think that's clearly what's playing out in a couple of the zones, not just the media, but academia, too, that have the most sort of intensity of intergenerational conflict right now, right? That you have these, these industries that have one, a sort of formal commitment to an ideology of multiculturalism and diversity. Two, a big gap between the ethno-racial makeup of the older generation and the younger generation. And three, no jobs anymore for the younger generation to enter into, or a narrowing, a narrowing number of jobs. And I think reading some of this through that lens, the question of racism is becoming the means through which this larger sort of sense that, you know, th there isn't there isn't anywhere for the younger generation of would-be editors and writers and academics to go. That's really interesting, Ross, because one thing I've thought of, which is maybe an anagram of what you're saying, is how much of what we're seeing is born of economic pessimism, right? So, for example, I've written a lot about the college admissions mania. Um, and so I've given a lot of thought to the question, why 
are people uh, more cutthroat than ever about getting into certain institutions, right? About about getting through getting into these very exclusive realms, and the biggest part of the reason is because there is a sense that the American pie is not expanding. Um, there's no longer the bedrock belief, which used to be so core to the American mythology and spirit, that your kids were going to do better than you, and so people are reacting in a way. Uh, that reflects the belief that they're competing in greater numbers for smaller rewards. Although I also don't think we should have a totally economic explanation for what really is, in a lot of cases, just a history of people having to swallow an enormous amount of shit and then kind of suddenly speaking out all at once, right? There is an actual, you know, sort of longstanding problem that people are reacting to. And sometimes... I see these stories, you know, I, there's a fascinating story in Vulture about the implosion of the National Book Critics Circle. And I sometimes reflexively kind of roll my eyes and imagine that this is going to be, you know, sort of political correctness run amok. And then you see the things that people are saying and you think, my God, what 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 people have been putting up with is is unbelievable. You know, in the same way that I think a lot of Men, when Me Too movement came, when the Me Too movement um, started, were like, oh, my God, is it really like that? Is it really that bad? Well, Michelle, people have also been told that they have to fit in very narrow and unforgiving boxes. And people have also been subjected. I mean, here going back to the complaints in corporations in the workplace, people have been subjected to this notion that success or potential success or great contributions only look a certain way. You mentioned Vogue, uh, Condé Nast, Anna Wintour earlier. Um, our Times colleague, the big city columnist, Genia Belafonte, wrote a column that I would direct all readers to where she talked about the culture over which Anna Wintour presided at, at Vogue and at Condé Nast. And she went through the resumes of a succession of Anna Wintour's assistants, right? An assistant doesn't sound glorious, but that it actually is a coveted position as Anne Hathaway's performance in The Devil Wears Prada educated us all about. Um, and it was just astonishing that the notion of proper resume, the proper profile of someone who was going to work in any of those jobs. It was so cinching. It was so narrow. Um, it's totally unjust, and it leaves tons of people out. And P.S., it's not good for any corporation because you end up throwing a whole lot of potential talent uh, by the wayside. All right. Well, now that I've led us into, um, you know, ex what was it? What was her character? What was the Anna Wintour Miranda Priestley. Oh, my, I can't believe... I can't... This, Ross, Miranda this, this is what this is what I have in my hard drive in lieu of more valuable information. Miranda Priestley. <laughs> so having brought us around successfully, as I intended all along, to Miranda Priestley, <laughs> thank you for that, Frank. Um, I guess I should just declare that's our show for the week. Thank you for listening. We expect that we'll turn to wider subjects beyond the news media next week. And you can find links to the articles we mentioned in our show notes or by visiting nytimes.com backslash the argument. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media with help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Lauren Kelly, Paula Schumann, and Makile Teodori. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here, we promise, next week. Mm -hmm.